So I got this candle for my sister for our birthday because we're twins. So we share a birthday. Oh, I know this. Okay, keep going. It's called the library and it smells like, okay, it smells like old books in a very mahogany wood kind of way. Mm-hmm. It also has on it that it smells like lavender, which you and I both talked about, not big fans of. Ew, but no. you, I don't really get that. Okay. I think because it also is eucalyptus. So it has this air of this clean, open, library, wooden room. And it is delightful. And I burn it while reading books, which reminds me that you told me the other day that you did something even next level to that. That I need you to share with everyone. It's not. It's not that it was next level. It's just that it. I, I increased the fire, so <laughs> <laughs> I had to work. My statement stands. <laughs> so I had to work late into the eve. I had to read on the computer. I had to read books, and so I wasn't feeling it. And I just lit a bunch of candles and turned off all the lights and tried to make it feel like that kind of office with candles everywhere. And it helps. It helps. It does. It's just such a good, wonderful vibe, and I love it so much. Sometimes you just need to do things by candlelight. I've become quite the snob about candles in that if I don't like the smell, it's not happening, first of all. And I really need it to have a clean burn. Candles that tunnel, I get so mad. I get so mad tunnel or when they use wicks that are too thick for the candle and it's just sets off my fire alarm Mm, i love a candle with a wood wick the ones that crackle love that i love it so much it's a it's i have one that i can't find anymore that i found once at a random store that had the best wood wick and the best smell and the best sound i think about it all the time what the heck trace that's the kind of information we need it was like I, I thrifted it somewhere. I don't you, remember what it was. You thrifted a candle? Not from like a – it was from like Home Goods or something. Like it was just this random candle. Tracy, you were clearly written by a woman. You are a character <laughs> who was written by a woman. Oh, my God. That is such a good compliment. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to ride that high for a while. Do it. Hey, that's Tracy Harrison. She was written by a woman. And that's Rowan Hall, who was written also by a really cool woman, but like a woman who's genuinely cool and not like trying to be cool. Like she just walks into a room and you just are gravitating towards her and she writes characters like that. And that's Rowan. And this is Willing and Fable, a podcast written by two women that brings you (laughs) original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. And if you, dear listener, would like to support us, you can do so by subscribing, rating us wherever you listen to podcasts. You can shop our merch at our willingandfable.com site, or you can join our Patreon and become a member of our secret Discord. Lastly, you could just stand by the sea as the waves lap against your feet, and you imagine that you're waiting for your long-lost lover to return from the sea. But no matter what you do, We appreciate having you here. Okay, we gotta talk about it. I think talking about candles made you bring out your customer service voice from when you used to work in a candle (laughs) store. 
Listen, I worked at a candle store. I was great at selling candles. I knew every single candle in the store. And if you had any ideas of what you wanted, I could pick out a candle for you. And it does bring out the customer service in me. I know that that job was really hard and its own kind of agonizing. But you really were a boon to that store. Oh, that job was hard in that customer service jobs are always hard. But my manager was amazing, recognized what I like how awesome I was as a salesperson in that store. Like it, it was far and away the best retail customer service job I've ever had. <laughs> I liked it when you had that job because I got a lot of candles for Christmas. Oh, everyone in my life got candles. They got like all kinds of scented stuff. And then anytime someone came in the store, we had these um, coupons that we could scan as employees if someone forgot their coupons or something. And so anytime someone I knew came in the store, I would just tell my coworkers, like, oh, they forgot their coupons. Just use the the customary, the, <laughs> the whatever ones and got everyone I knew <laughs> really good discounts every time That's they came in. awesome. Yeah. And my boss didn't care because she was like, well, we're getting sales. So – that's fine. Like, I'd rather them come in and be happy and keep shopping here with us and then go somewhere else. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Customer service bosses that get upset about your friend getting a, a tiny discount are baffle me. They really do. Because who cares? Who really cares? Especially candles. Anyway, real quick, before we dive into the, the meat of the episode... Last request, lovely listeners, if you have a story and you want to send it in, we would love to read it on our Listener Legends episode. If you heard episode 50, you'll know that we really love doing it. We would like to do some more. So email us at willingandfable at gmail.com or head over to willingandfable.com slash contact. It's really fun. It's easy. And you will be making two women written by women who write a podcast very happy. Well done. <laughs> Whew, we got there. Okay. Hey, so Tracy last episode covered the Malleus Maleficarum. Mm -hmm. You all know Tracy and I love witches. Mm -hmm. I wanted to expand upon the witch trials and basically take us to witch pet smart. This episode is about witches familiars. I'm so excited. And I think as we're heading into the best month ever, October. Witches familiars are a particularly good topic because, like, aside from the jack-o'-lantern, what is more iconic for Halloween imagery other than witches and black cats? Like, they're peanut butter and jelly for Halloween. Yes. Yeah. I mean, nothing. A, a basket of apples. Like, I mean, there's just nothing for Halloween. You get ghost, witch... Probably pumpkin spice latte now. Pumpkin spice. Pumpkin spice. I do love a good pumpkin spice. I do. I do love it. I love it. I know who I am. I love it. <laughs> so I'm going to start us off with an image. Tracy, look at this lovely witch that I have provided. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. She's in a beautiful orange gown with some kind of mesh sleeve. The fabric is beautiful. Looks very silky. She looks like she's pouring something into a goblet. Um, she's got beautiful red hair. She's sitting in front of a window and at her feet is a very cute little black cat. Right. With truly demonic eyes. I mean, they're not red. They're just, it, they're just two little yellow eyes and it's black face. 
<laughs> so this painting is The Love Potion by Evelyn de Morgan. It's from 1903, which makes it pretty modern. But anytime you Google witches familiars, this is the image that the internet gives you. And probably because it's a beautiful witch and a cute cat in that Grecian style that everyone mm -hmm. loves. It's very Art Nouveau. Oh, it is. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to start us off there because Tracy and I are team witches. We are. We love witches. And we're about to talk about people who are not team witches. The lore of familiars that I'm discussing today primarily comes from the UK and Scotland and thus migrated to the US and was able to become a large part of the witch trials on both sides of the pond because... As I learned this week, in the world of witch hunting, you can't really separate the familiar from the witch and still have the same criminal participation from Satan. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and I, you touched on so much of this during your discussion of the Malleus Maleficarum, so everybody keep that in mind while we're exploring, because the witch's familiar is a huge part of the persecution of these women. The witch trials in England occurred between the 15th and 18th centuries and are estimated to have resulted in the deaths of 500 to 1,000 people, according to Wikipedia, or 30,000 to <sighs> 60,000 people, according to English heritage. Wow. That's a big difference. I'll bet. One might say three times the difference. 30 times the difference? 30 times the difference. Either way, it's not counting the death toll in other countries outside England. The trials certainly spread to other parts of Europe, and one of the most notoriously intense periods of witch hunting occurred in the United States during the Civil War and Puritan era mm -hmm. in the mid-17th century. Bridget Bishop, first person killed in the Salem witch trials. Sorry, Bridget. It's okay. We covered her in an earlier episode if you want to learn more about her story. And hear us get very angry once again. <laughs> we always really get angry about this, so buckle up, buttercup. It's particularly difficult to get accurate numbers from witch trials. For example, Pierre de Lancre's book, Description of the Inconstancy of Evil, Angels, and Demons, contains one of the most famous illustrations of a witch's Sabbath from the 1600s. He was, quote, a classic demonologist who believed in lycanthropy and also happened to be a witch trial judge. An article from Cornell University says he, quote, once boasted of burning 600 witches and believed that all 30,000 inhabitants of Pays de la Borde were infected by witchcraft. So assuming he's not a dirty rat bastard liar, which he most definitely was, he created most of a statistic on his own. Mm-hmm. It makes sense, given what we talked about in the last episode, that Heinrich Kramer, who wrote The Malleus Maleficarum, basically said, unless a woman has extremely wonderful moral, spiritual values and goes to live in a convent, she will succumb to witchcraft. You can see why he believes that everyone would be affected by it if he's also following that same line of thinking. And if he's that classic demonologist, he probably was. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There are so many men who are mad 
that really defined the witch trials. God, so mad. So mad. So mad at women just for existing. It is an important fact that various sources include is about 90% of the people accused and killed for witchcraft in England were identified as women. Mm -hmm. By that token, I'm going to be primarily using she, her pronouns when referring to witches throughout my research today. And this is because a huge amount of the historical narrative with familiars is focused on the prosecution of women as witches. That said, a person of any gender can be a witch. Mm -hmm. And anyone that says otherwise is officially uninvited from our full moon bonfire communing with the devil and blaspheming, blah, 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 blah. Wikipedia explains the legal situation for witches in England. Quote, the first witchcraft act in England was introduced in 1542. The act was, however, repealed in 1547. The Witchcraft Act of 1563 introduced the death penalty for any sorcery used to cause someone's death. In 1604, the Witchcraft Act was reformed to include anyone to have made a pact with Satan. Hmm. Okay. Interesting how it changed throughout the years. It is. It. Hold on. The, <laughs> okay. 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 This Continue. is going to irk you. Great. Can't wait. The 1604 Act Against Conjuration, Witchcraft, and Dealing with Evil and Wicked Spirits identified felons as, quote, any person or persons who shall use, practice, or exercise any invocation or conjuration of any evil or wicked spirit, or shall consult, covenant with, employ, feed, or reward any evil and wicked spirit to or for any intent or purpose. So at this point, in 1604, witchcraft isn't just the act of communing with the devil, blah, 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 blah. If your own child is living with you, and they're decided to be a witch, and you feed them and take care of them and protect them because you love them, you're also now a felon? Mm, that's what it sounds like. But it's... This feeding of evil spirits that it's referring to is actually the first reference to the familiar in English law. Oh. So before it was codified in this text, the witch's familiar did exist in popular culture as evidence against witches, but this mm -hmm. was kind of the big deal crackdown. And the feeding of the familiar I'm going to get into is a big deal. The reason the 1604 Act kind of changed the game is because. Any person who works with an evil spirit in any way, like, that's basically a blanket statement for some dude who's pissed to say a woman did literally anything that upset them yes. and mm -hmm. associate an evil spirit and, you know, get them in trouble. Right. It's, it's carte blanche to do whatever you like with the power you have. <laughs> the presence of familiars in the confessions of accused witches is often used as evidence to hallucination, as Margaret Murray says, in The Witch Cult in Western Europe. However, she believes that a, quote, foundation of fact underlies the statements of the accused. Now, this book was originally published in 1921, and it illustrates Murray's theory that the accusations against witches in Europe were based on a real, secret, horned god-worshipping religion. 
And that's sticky in a few Mm -hmm. ways. Not the least reason being that there have always been non-Christian religions in Europe that have more complicated gods and symbolism than Christianity would care to admit, especially since their appropriation of other religious practices does not mean that the continuation of those practices by the originators has anything to do with Christians. And many women who were tried as witches were really just mistreated by their communities for reasons that had nothing to do with any god. And as Tracy and I have discussed, torture will make people admit to all sorts of things, including Mm -hmm. but not limited to talking to animals. Absolutely. And and part of what we've talked about before was how the more outspoken you were as a woman in these times, the more likely you were to be accused of a witch. Right. So anyway, Murray's book, it mm-hmm. it sounds like it is starting to touch on the great goddess theory. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, if you choose to read it, you know, read it with a grain of salt, like always with these more historical texts. But she compiled a whole bunch of really awesome firsthand information from the trials that I'm going to be referencing. So that's cool as hell. Yeah, it is. I have another image for you, Tracy. (laughs) I don't know why this one makes me laugh so much. Oh, okay. This is a black and white illustration. And keep in mind as you're describing it that this is from the 1647 book, The Discovery of Witches by Matthew Hopkins. And he had around 300 women executed between 1645 and 1646. Wow. Okay. First of all, A Discovery of Witches is a book about a witch and a vampire falling in love. So that's a fun fact for you. The Discovery of Witches is very different. (laughs) Right. Yeah. There's the lusty modern book and then there's the older book written by a murderer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is a black and white illustration at the top, it says Matthew Hopkins, Witchfinder General. <laughs> and it's got. Oh my God. It's got a. Uh, uh, I'm guessing is the witch in a chair saying, My imp's names are. And then across from that, a- another person sitting in a chair saying, Halt. <laughs> I think. And there's a cat and a dog and. Animals that are definitely not real animals. Well, okay, so a lot of these animals have names written next to them that are famous names of familiars. So, (laughs) so, Piewecket is a familiar that gets mentioned a lot. Um, Grizel and Greedigut were names of familiars that come up a lot. They sound like characters from the musical Cats. They really do. And actually, oh gosh, one witch hunter, and I I want to say that it was Matthew Hopkins, but perhaps it wasn't. I, I read this so many years ago, but he <laughs> famously said that one of the ways that he knows that these animals were devilish familiars is because no human could come up with these names that they have. And (laughs) one of the famous names of a familiar is Vinegar Tom. Oh, yeah. I was going to say tag yourself. I'm Vinegar Tom. (laughs) For sure. I'm going to go with uh, I'm the Black Rabbit, Sack and Sugar 
Ooh, very good. Very good. We'll definitely have this on the Instagram so everyone can tag themselves. (laughs) (laughs) And I think as depicted in this image and as we've described, many of us, myself included, imagine familiars as a small animal that is part of a witch's magical manifesto. Cats and dogs are incredibly popular, but there are toads and rats and snakes and ferrets, crows, even bugs have been known to partner with a magic practitioner. And so I want to read the quote that had me laughing so hard. And I would like to nominate it as the official defining quote of this episode. Okay. I'm excited. It's from an article on English Heritage, and I don't know who wrote the piece, but to that person, if you ever hear this, I love you. Okay. Quote, by the 1590s, the last decade of Elizabeth I's reign, The idea of the witch in England had crystallized as an old, very poor woman, lame or blind in one eye, and inclined to lose her temper over personal slights. Her dry, twisted, and aging body was a kind of poison, and she was believed to be able to harm people and animals simply by speaking to them or looking at them. However, in the meantime, the law had been updated to reflect the work of continental demonologists. These thinkers rejected the idea that elderly women could do magic that flouted the will of God. They concluded it must be the devil who had all the power, and so the witch's familiar became demon. I love the image described there as, (laughs) like, the, 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 the dry, twisting woman who could poison you with simply looking at you. I want to be her. Right. She's so (laughs) ugly and she's got an eye that doesn't work and probably other parts of her body don't work and she can just mess you up forever with a glance. Mm -hmm. I want that for me. It's proud hag energy. It's proud hag energy. It's proud hag energy. (laughs) I am particularly fascinated by this quote because of this inclusion of removing the power from the woman herself and using the presence of the familiar to give that power to the male deity, Satan. Mm -hmm. Especially because the real-life version of the woman that this quote describes would have likely been a healer or a wise woman in their community. And their lack of confirmation to the local Christian church ideals or the way Mm. that X-Man wants them to operate would have been a problem. So saying this woman has power is not as effective as saying this woman communes with an evil power. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. So not only are you a pagan, you're a pagan that is <laughs> is not powerful. <laughs> well, and the only reason that you have power is because you're communing with something more powerful than you, which is inherently an evil act, which means you're evil and you're someone who's corrupt and greedy and wanting power by communing with that person. So now we can punish you. And it's so much easier on us. And look at how good we are for punishing you for that. It's so brilliant because it gives that woman just the right amount of power for people to be afraid enough to act the way you want them to. Mm-hmm. To say, oh, she's evil. We have to do something about it. But it keeps enough power out of the equation that no one has to be really uh, quite as afraid of her. Like, the male influence will fit. You can cut her off from the power. Exactly. I Mm -hmm. love it because it's horrible. 
The etymology of this trickles down from two places. The Greek daimon, which is a lesser deity or spirit that watches over a person or place and or facilitates the will of the gods. And then we have the Latin word famulus that means servant. Okay. So by the time we reach the witch trials, there are two types of a witch's familiar. And I'm going to quote Margaret Murray again. One, those by which the witch divined brilliant sentence. Chef's kiss. Great job saying it. I don't know. I couldn't even compliment you on it without stumbling. So good job. (laughs) Two, those who attended on the witch to obey her commands. Unlike the second variation, a divine familiar does not belong to the witch. Very often it appeared, quote, by accident after a magical ceremony, or it was believed to be sent by the devil after a woman's initiation into the practice so that the creature might act as his emissary and aid in her wicked magic. I wish this was true. I'm like you last episode where I'm like, yeah, sign me up. Who do I have to be initiated with in order to get my familiar to come hang out with me? I know you were describing the way they thought witches were initiated in the last episode. And I was like, hell yeah, do it. Get that dog or cat or toad to help you out. Yeah, so okay, so we'll get together, we'll go fly, <laughs> and we'll attend a ceremony conducted by Satan himself, dance under the moonlight, and then leave with our respective familiars sent to us very thoughtfully by Satan himself. Right, it's like a parting present. It sounds like it. Like, you know, when you go to a, like when kids go to a birthday party for another kid, but they give away little party bags for everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> The devil would instruct the witch in interpreting and translating the movements, sounds, and behaviors of the animal familiar. And a practitioner might use this power to learn a person's lifespan or the state of a victim of bewitching or even see the future. And the seeing the future one really always sticks out to me because that is the domain of God. Mm-hmm. People are not supposed to be doing that. That is one of those, like, point of finger, kind of how dare you right. magical practices. In this more metaphysical, demonic form of the familiar, the spirits could take on a human form or even double the witch that they served. They might change from one animal to another or operate as spirits, proving, of course, that they were absolutely evil. Right, of course. That's so horrible. Definitely doesn't sound dope at all. (laughs) Right. And uh, quick sidebar, people were very afraid that a witch's familiar, or a witch, would enter their home. So on Mm -hmm. the threshold, they would have a symbol like a spiral. And that was meant to confuse the spirit so that it would be too lost to get through the threshold. Or they would have this interwoven M, which was supposed Mm. to signify the Virgin Mary. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I want to put a spiral on my front door now just to be cool, but, I mean, all all spirits and familiars welcome here. I was going to say, you, you're the last person who would want to keep them out. You'd be like, come on in. You want some tea? How can I help you? Are you feeling good? <laughs> welcome. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> a contemporary quote from the witch trials in Somerset reads, And when she hath a desire to do harm, she calls the spirit by the name Robin, To whom, when he appeareth, she useth these words, O Satan, 
give me my purpose. If you have any familiarity with the satanic panic in the U.S. in the 1980s, this is basically the same thing, but with more saith and useth and crieth and less hairspray. Oh, I cannot wait to cover the satanic panic one day. Yeah, I'm going to let you do that because I love listening to stories about the satanic panic so much, but I find it just so utterly overwhelming. It's like all of this ridiculousness, but with phones and radio shows. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) So now we have the second type of animal servant, and that is the domestic familiar. Okay, okay. These small animals are often referred to as imps. An example of this type of familiar is illustrated perfectly in the St. Osythe Trials in Essex in 1582. Ursula Kemp, bitch, accused Elizabeth Bennet of having a ferret... Not not Elizabeth Bennet from Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> Just to call it out there. <laughs> Different Elizabeth Bennet, a couple hundred years before her time. Right. This Elizabeth Bennet was accused of having a ferret-shaped spirit that she kept in a pot. Okay. Apparently, this spirit had caused the death of several people and bewitched some cattle. And also, in the same area, a resident named Alice rewarded her ferret-in-a-pot spirit with some blood to suck after it killed six animals belonging to a man named Hayward. (laughs) I don't even know where you come up with these accusations. Could you imagine being mad at another woman over it's some it's got to be something trivial. It's got to be and going this woman has a ferret okay a non-corporeal ferret in a pot right. in her house a demon shaped like a ferret that does magic. I promise. You're not going to be able to find it but it's there. <laughs> And it it bewitched my cattle. As someone who had a ferret, (laughs) I can't imagine anything more fun than a metaphysical ferret that lives in a vessel inside your home. (laughs) (laughs) They're so cute and cuddly. Slither out. (laughs) I love it. I I had to include that because it cracked me up when I read it. It's incredible. So feeding these domestic vessel living familiars was a large part of the narrative. Feeding any familiar, as you heard in the Witchcraft Mm -hmm. Act, is a huge part of the diagnosing of someone as a witch via familiar ownership. They often, these household spirits that did domestic acts for the witches... They often enjoyed cream and and bread and beer, and you had to care for them, and they lived in these small spaces in the home. Tracy, what does that remind you of? Mm, Weird. It feels like something we might have covered on the podcast before, namely being household spirits like brownies. Yeah, Did they just take brownies and be like, this wonderful thing is now demonic? Basically, yeah. I hate that. The English and Scottish lore around familiars is said to be an adaptation of brownies and other hobgoblins. Hence, this name imp familiar kind of back and forth. Oh my god. It's such a twisting of something that we have talked about before that it's just been 
so interesting and brought so much joy and to just twist it and turn it into this evil thing and then use that to kill people is why I always want to go into witch stuff and I'm so interested and I always come out of it feeling like I got slapped in the face or splashed with cold water. Don't you want Christianity just to shock you ever? Just ever? Because of course they took hobgoblins and made Mm -hmm. them anti-Christian Satan demons. Of course they did. When I read that, I was shaken. Mm -hmm. Because it seems so obvious now, but my brain just did not Didn't get there. I did the same thing in mine. There's so many times where it's like saying it out loud. I hear hear how obvious it is. And yet when I was researching, I was just shocked. In many trials, women were accused of, quote, feeding, suckling, or rewarding imps that destroyed the livelihoods and lives of locals. And I really want to talk about that word suckling because Mm -hmm. one of the major ways that familiars were said to be fed was via the blood of a witch. And it was offered from a fingertip or between the fingers or a prick on the face. And then this kind of evolved into being fed from a mole or an extra nipple or a mark that would be found on a witch upon the inspection of a midwife at trial. So the mark of the witch is where she would feed her familiar. Right. And so you can just pick any skin thing on a woman Mm -hmm. and say, oh, look, she fed a familiar. And the image of a woman suckling a wild animal. Let's, Let's really dive into that because the narrative evolved from what was originally just the pricking of the face of the finger. And mm-hmm. let's be clear, they looked for wounds or other evidence of blood sucking, but the pervasive image was a woman who had a wild animal nursing at her breast, the way mothers were meant to hold their innocent human infants. Right. And not only was that supposed blood ritual a flip of the food chain, like, I eat you. You're not supposed to drink from me. Right. It's also in direct conflict with the Christian image of the mother. This woman, who was heavily implied to have performed sexual acts with the devil, who blasphemes against God with her magic and herbs and animals, was now put in direct conflict with the Virgin Mary. That's so interesting. I never thought of it that way as every part of her being in conflict with everything that a Christian woman was supposed to represent. It's exactly like you were saying in the last episode, the positive and the negative. Mm -hmm. And it's not about balancing them. It's about absolutely eradicating the negative. Yes. And in this case, the negative is a witch who is doing every single thing, just every single thing opposite of what Christianity wants. And all you need is a mark on on a person who likely has a trade job or works out in a field. I bruised just walking around. This is before antibiotics. They all probably had smallpox at some point. Oh, yeah. Imagine someone who has, I don't know, eczema or acne. Mm-hmm. There's your mark. Mm-hmm. Despite this narrative 
of kind of this uh, satanic mother. It was not really said that witches birthed their own familiars. Right. Like the divine familiar, the domestic familiar could be a gift from the devil upon her initiation into the order. She might conjure one herself, or commonly, the animals were inherited or given to them by another witch. In numerous trials, accused witches would involve other women by saying that they had been gifted their familiars from someone else. Oh. I mean, terrible way to get women to take each other down. But if this were real and you could really be part of this community of women who gift each other familiars, I want to be in that club. I just think it's such a brilliant power structure. We've talked mm-hmm. about this so many times, but if you can get the person that you're trying to beat down to do it to each other, you're golden. Well, it's like in the Malice Maleficarum in the trial section, they say, if, if you think someone is a particularly powerful witch, tell them that they won't be killed if they give you more names. And then here are three different ways you can trick them and or technically technically not lie and end up killing them anyway, but also get the information you need. Wow. Every time we describe something like this, all I can think of is the modern justice system at work. Mm-hmm. When you catch someone who has a small amount of a drug on them, if you can get them to give you names of other persons, they're not going to go to jail. But now you have the next person and the next person. And Yep. One of my favorite stories of a way of conjuring familiars mm-hmm. involved two women stealing communion bread from church by smuggling it out in their mouths and then walking around the church nine times and the devil appeared and thus they got their familiars. So please just imagine these little chipmunk women with their cheeks mm-hmm. full of bread. And that being the way that they're going to conjure these horrible satanic. I also want to know who got the cheat code and let them know to walk nine times around the church. Exactly. And this stealing communion bread element happened in mm-hmm. multiple stories. I'm not surprised. It's such a affront to Christianity. Right. And I don't know if this story comes from a witch hunter or someone who was mm-hmm. put on trial and being tortured and then had to come up with a story. But it is a, the exact story to put you at odds with Christianity. The communion right. bread, the body of Christ, and and now we're doing something weird. We're walking around and the devil is going to appear right outside of the church itself. Mm-hmm. The belief in satanic familiars blended with the fear of lycanthropy which is the transformation of a person into an animal, usually a wolf. Mm -hmm. As recounted in folktales, it was believed that some witches could and did transform into animals themselves. There are stories of goat-headed half-people. That's a particular favorite. Of course, they dance around by moonlight. There are stories of she-wolves. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite examples of that is, you know, a wolf attacks the livestock of a man and 
So the man attacks the wolf back with an axe and cuts off one of his legs, and then the next day, one of the women in town is missing an arm. Oh, mm-hmm. So during the trials, where a woman was inspected for these witches' markings, prosecutors would also search for injuries that would have sustained while they were in their animal form. Right. Because it was said that they would remain on the woman's flesh, proving their guilt. Again, just pick a daily nick, a cut, mm-hmm. a bruise, and all of a sudden yeah. you have a woman who oh, turned I into an animal. Her arm and when she was an animal and you find someone who has a scratch on their hand or something like it it's so broad and so easy. Right, and we have to keep in mind that many of these women between trials were being tortured. Right. So it just becomes increasingly easy to manufacture evidence. Mm-hmm. Especially when someone is being so brutalized that they'll manufacture it for you. Right. Historian Emma Wilby illustrates the way animals and imps have appeared to help protagonists with supernatural powers throughout popular folktales. She included examples like Rumpelstiltskin, Puss in Boots, The Frog Prince, etc. She says, quote, These fairy stories and myths originate from the same reservoir of folk beliefs as the descriptions of familiar encounters given by cunning folk and witches. That way of thinking was another moment of, as soon as I read it, of course, it makes so much sense. And that Mm -hmm. really, for me, grounds Murray's theory about there actually being a religion that these witches were participating in. Right. It keeps it from being quite as satanic panicky and brings us back to what you and I were saying around brownies. Of course you can take these other cultures and make them demonic. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really consider the fact that, like, take a Disney movie. Every Disney princess has a cute little animal. That follows her around. Oh, they all sing and follow them, and half of them have a direct animal companion who, if they don't explicitly speak English, still communicate very thoroughly and understand the language. Right. And this idea of a familiar in that case is something that we all love. Mm-hmm. It, humans love the idea of animal companions. Yes. So. I think I thought last week a lot about how you were saying, you know, when men were accused of witchcraft, it was for power. Mm-hmm. So when you look at a man who has a pet dog, he's just a man with a dog. But when you look at a woman with a pet dog, suddenly you, you can take the cultural narrative and, and really make up any story that you want to. Mm-hmm. I'm just really, you know, for someone who makes up stories every week, I'm just really stuck on this, like, making up of a violent narrative. Because it's it's making up a story from – because it's making up a story by someone in power to abuse or put down those with less power. It's not just making up a story for the sake of making up a story. That's the whole point of our podcast. We love the idea of mythology and story and folktale and all of that. It is – making up a broad, general story for the purpose of oppressing those with less power. And not to mention, I mean, we have figures like the Norse god Freya. She drove a chariot pulled by cats. 
Mm-hmm. And <laughs> there's actually a bit of debate on the translation front there. Um, were they cats or were they bears is a big discussion. And, you mm. know, if they were cats, were they house cat sized or were they big cat sized? But this is really important imagery because Freya was the goddess of love and fertility and sex. And she's often associated with witchcraft. So we have a deity, a woman that is Mm -hmm. magical, that is associated with cats. And when we blend religious beliefs like Freya, and then we have the Greek diamond, and then we sprinkle in hobgoblins and tutelary spirits, and then we add time and travel and generations of folklore, and then put it all at odds with Christianity because they needed it to convert people. Let's just be clear. Absolutely. They very much put it at odds and put themselves in the position of power in order to do so. Right. And, you know, suddenly we have the witch trials and everything from the way you run your household to the herbs that you use to heal yourself to your gosh darn cat can get you killed. I don't have evidence for this, but I'd love to explore it more. I saw something once. About how, you know, people always say, like, eye of newt and tongue of whatever as a witch's chant for what she's putting in her potions. I've seen it theorized that those are just... Oh, they were names for herbs. Just names for herbs. Uh-huh, yeah. The medicinal herbs. The same way we call something St. John's wort. I used to know that. Because uh, we did, I mean, we did a Macbeth while I was in college and I looked up what herbs people thought they were. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you a single one now. But yes, I've heard that before. Yeah, I find that so interesting. And again, it's one of those, oh, <laughs> duh, of course. But it's just become such a cultural meme for us in modern vernacular of witches. Mm-hmm. It's hard to separate the history from the pointy hat witch stirring her cauldron with the hook nose and green skin that we see around Halloween now. Do you remember? Okay. Do you remember in elementary school, in our music class, our teacher would always do the witch's brew song around Halloween? Come on, please remember this. You, it. I remember her and I remember a lot of her songs. It listed off crazy ingredients. I put them in my witch's brew, alakazam, kazoo. That's all I remember. Yes. <laughs> See, the one that has stuck with me forever is the the one about the stammering Irishman who's so excited about this girl, Kate. <gasps> oh, my God. Katie. Katie. Beautiful Katie. You're the only good girl that I adore. In the moonlight. Moonlight. Go for the couch. I'll be waiting at the kitchen door. Wow. Ah, oh, she was a really good teacher. <laughs> what was her? I don't know. Children love love repeating things, and so having yeah. that happen every year. Ah. Oh. Mm-hmm. She also always had fun hats, and she said her brain would stretch out to fill the hats. Oh my god, she was a goose. She was a silly goose. Yes. <laughs> I say this with the utmost respect. This is one hundred percent a compliment, but she could totally be a witch. Like that woman, as I remember her, if she went home and had full on conversations with, I don't know, Kat, I'd be like, oh, yeah, cool. That's totally normal. Don't call me out because I have full on conversations with my cat. 
Okay, what you can't see is that Rowan just raised her eyebrows and put her fingers together with her thumbs up in the ooh ooh gesture, just staring at me. <laughs> As Helen Parrish for the Department of History at the University of Reading writes, this integration of the familiar into the narrative of witchcraft evolved as a result of the osmotic relationship that existed between demonological writings, popular culture, ecclesiastical law, and secular statute. I don't want to beat the point over the head, but every time I read about this, I keep trying to put myself in that scenario and imagine how useful it was to the power structures of the time to villainize these women. Because it would be useful not in this like grand ethereal outside of the daily life way. It would be useful every moment of every day Yes, to villainize these women. It's such a convenient, pervasive way to hold on to or obtain power in society. And when you have this structure of a god that you rely on to have eternal goodness and you can demonize someone's culture, these religions that Christianity originally absorbed and then later villainized, you're creating an unrest inside of an individual, the people who watch these witch trials, who are trying to keep from right. being put on trial, that makes them so easy to control. And it, that, I just think about that all the time. And I had no idea that familiars were such a part of the witch trials. I just thought like, oh, witches have cats. <laughs> I didn't either. Yeah. I I truly didn't know it went to that extent. I always thought I knew the idea of a witch familiar, knew the idea that it was kind of a devilish creature, didn't realize how much it was a part of the trial. It's, it, people like having animals, so it's just so – it's another thing that's frustrating of taking something great and making it potentially terrible. It's also especially convenient when women don't want to have children. Mm -hmm. You and I would be out. We'd just be out. Pets but no children? Yeah. Because you're not fulfilling your role in society. And, oh, look, the role you're fulfilling is evil. Now, goodbye. That's fine. Stop talking to your cat, Tracy, or they're going to come for you. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Never. All right. Let's, let's do a little story. All right. Every good magical practitioner has a familiar. They come in all sorts. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Some are large and burly, others long and lithe. Some more domestic and caring, others wild and demanding. The owls will tell you to keep your familiar in a place far away from your home. They're messy, loud creatures, they'll say. They keep daytime hours and have no idea how to go about doing anything silently. But owls... Off fools. So I'll tell you how it's really done. The cat's way. Tom Cat's Guide to the Care and Keeping of Your Human Familiar. One. I put this at the top because it's important. You'll forget if I don't remind you. 
Let your human familiar believe that you care about them. All you need to do is allow them to pet behind your ears, or perhaps sit on their lap every once in a while. It works like a charm. Two, by that same token, keep them in their place. Humans are stubborn beings, and they'll start to believe they're in charge if you're not careful. Give them the occasional swipe, claws out. Remind them who performs the magic around here. 3. When Satan, our powerful unholy lord in all his glory, yada yada yada, grants you a human, remember, they have to go through quite the ordeal to even qualify as a witch. It's quite a bit of magical work for being so weak of spirit, so try not to judge your familiar immediately, but in the interest of establishing the rules, do demand food right away. None of this honeyed milk or cream malarkey. It has to be blood. So, the first meeting goes thusly. Do not judge. Have your snack. Feel their mortal life force invigorate you and then perform a minor act of magic. Kill a cow or a man. Your witch will be impressed. 4. Take up residence, at least partially, within the human's abode. Just to show you mean business, it will remind them to satisfy your hunger. You can create a pocket dimension in a box or a pot or a jar. Human witches love having vessels everywhere. They'll leave you alone if you've followed rules one and two closely enough. Remember, affectionate scratches, claw swipe. A simple recipe for success. Five. Here's the thing. Satan has bestowed a familiar upon you for two purposes. One, life force. Humans are excellent fuel, especially the witchy ones. And two, chores. You are a magical being. You haven't any time for finding food or tidying or all that rigmarole. Utilize your satanic gift. Shit somewhere inconvenient and watch your witch take care of it for you. <laughs> Six. When your witch familiar calls upon you to perform magic, have some integrity. Do a magnificent job. Make grown men cry, if you can. We're cats, for God's sake. Imagine if Satan had given your familiar to a rat or a toad. There's a reason every cat worth their whiskers has a witch. So don't be afraid to show off a little. 7. Lastly... And this one is disappointing. When the human men come to kill your familiar witch, do not make an appearance. You'll want to, at least to watch. If your familiar has learned the scratch and swipe well enough, but don't. Satan will give you a new one, and then you can start the process all over again. That is the second story, I believe, you told from the point of view of a cat. I know. 
<laughs> what the hell? <laughs> I love it. I love this sassy cat. It reminds me of Salem from the uh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch TV show. Oh, okay. So there's uh, th- this cat in American McGee's Alice, the video games. Yes. And that is who I imagine with kind of a Salem quality. I don't know why I have now done the cat thing twice. I just love the idea of all these animals operating, being like, I I do magic with Satan. And Satan just gave me a familiar kind of Mm -hmm. in the same way. It's implied that people just get these animals. Yeah. It flips the power. And I love that. That's part of the whole flipping the power dynamic. It's great. It's just all so absurd anyway. Like, Yeah, it's very ridiculous. Let's kill a woman because she had a toad for a second. <laughs> uh, I would have been so dead. <laughs> same. I was just thinking that. I was like, well, if I was killed every time I held a toad as a kid. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we played in the woods a lot. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> no, we did. We really did. There were a lot of frogs and toads uh, in the childhood manifesto i took a picture of a toad last night outside my house it was very cool i miss toads oh i'll send you the picture of the toad i found he's a little king i loved him they're just so chubby i just love their little soft bellies he was so chill he was just hanging out he's just there to just there to say hi toads are great because they'll also eat all your bugs Mm -hmm. like thank you (laughs) <laughs> oh, I make I make Malcolm walk very wide around any toads that I see. Good. Like, they're our friends. Good. We love a toad. Did, mm-hmm. did you see the video of the dog that every time the owner would take it out for a walk in the woods would find a turtle? Every single time it found the turtles. <laughs> and it would have it so delicately in its mouth and it would just carry oh. the little turtle around. But the owner's always like, you can't, you can't have the turtle. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It was really cute because the dog wasn't like, ha I've got a turtle, I'm evil. It was just delicately carrying the little friend around and the little friend was panicking. Uh, understandably, yeah. So since I did this story from the point of view of a cat, mm-hmm. uh, I just really wanted to touch on another pet meets satanic panic misconception. Mm-hmm. Every year around Halloween... The internet loves to share stories about people adopting black cats to kill them for some satanic All Hallows' Eve ritual, and that if you're a good black cat owner, you'll keep them inside, and if you're a good animal shelter, you won't adopt black cats for the entire month of October. (laughs) But here's the thing. As the Kentucky Humane Society writes, quote, In 2007, National Geographic published an article titled Ritual Cat Sacrifices, a Halloween Myth, experts say. The author found, quote, no confirmed statistics, court cases, or studies to support the idea that serious satanic cult crime even exists, end Mm -hmm. quote. And in the case of that, quote, myth means falsehood. And, like, that narrative around black cats is just something for do-goodery internet people to tweet or share on Facebook. And black cats are notoriously under-adopted in shelters year-round because their coloring is considered less desirable. So this false story and the behavior that often comes from it makes it 
harder for an already struggling group of cats to find forever homes. And I just wanted to highlight that. If you need a witch's familiar of your own, consider adopting a black cat. And if you see one of those silly messages making the rounds on your social media of choice, consider quoting National Geographic to your friend. I would also add consider adopting a tuxedo cat, which are black and white, Mm -hmm. because they are adopted even less than black cats. Yeah, adopt a cat whose personality you like instead of whatever color you think you need. My cat, my cat Lola, is a black and white cat with yellow eyes who was not adopted for months and months and months at the shelter because she wasn't the look that people wanted. And I came in and I said, I want the nicest cat that you have. I want a friendly cat. And I have Lola now, who is basically a dog in a cat's body. She greets everyone at the door, licks everyone's faces, plays with my puppy. It's the sweetest animal that has ever existed. And no one wanted her because she was a black and white cat and she wasn't the all white cat or the all black cat or the striped cat or something exciting. She's just a typical black and white cat. And... The amount of people who see her now and say that she is beautiful or pretty or adorable or cute or or anything like that always makes me so happy because she was not chosen for months Mm. because she wasn't pretty enough. Yeah, I will will confess, having grown up uh, at a barn that had numerous, numerous cats, I'm a sucker for a good-looking cat. I really am. But I would always rather spend my time and have a pet that is nice. Because, mm-hmm. you know, um, truly, <laughs> sometimes personality really has to make up for uh, less than desirable cliched looks. Hi, hello, I'm Rowan Hall. Uh, I am reasonably <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, yeah, which is familiars? You did such a good job with this. It, I, I was wondering when, when you were coming to do which is familiars, I was like, how are we going to talk about this for... A whole episode, because in my head it was like, uh, 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 hags have cat story. Like I am just there's so much more to it, and that's the history of it was so interesting, and and the fact that it played such a big role in the witch trials, and that's just not something that's talked about as part of the witch trials, uh, really surprised me. I mean, we talk on this podcast all the time about maligned female figures in mm-hmm. story and mythology and history and i i don't want it to seem as if we're d- discussing the same topics over and over it's just that we keep finding them again and again because when i picked this topic i knew there was something there mm-hmm. and i mistakenly thought it would be somehow more fun <laughs> Right. (laughs) But we're seeing the same kinds of imagery. You know, I mentioned Freya, but Gorgons, they're associated with snakes. What other Mm -hmm. animal can be a witch's familiar? A snake. Mm -hmm. We have crows. Pick a pagan religion from Europe. And give me a story about a crow because they exist, I promise. Like, Oh, and birds represented death in ancient Roman culture. Absolutely. And we are seeing this this thread going through history that is so shockingly consistent. Mm -hmm. 
And I I always expect it to be different, and I don't know why. And this isn't even taking into account the people who were affected by the reality of the witch trials that didn't identify as men or as women. Or the people who were not heterosexual. And unfortunately, in the case of the witch trials we're discussing in, in England between the 15th and 18th century, we don't really have a lot of record of any of those kind of instances because because that identity didn't even make the radar. <laughs> there weren't words for it yet. There just simply <laughs> were not words for it yet, which is a whole thing to get into in history with LGBTQ plus history, the idea of there wasn't really a word for homosexuality for a long time and things were really ambiguous for a while at least for men again if you're in power you get to be a little bit more ambiguous with the way you live your life also in english we're specifically i just want to say in english specifically england and america Mm -hmm. because very specifically there are numerous cultures in north america just to pick a few that definitely had words and happy lovely practices (laughs) centered around the lgbtq community and this was not that so, yeah, hey, if if you're a woman and you have a pet, if you're a man and have a pet, I don't know, if you're a person who has a pet, go hug your pet. And also tell them to ask Daddy Satan if you can, I don't know, have the thing you want. Have that iced coffee. Fly. Have, right, fly. Have that look into the future. Yeah. Please, Daddy Satan, via my four-month-old puppy, can I fly? I think you should be asking via Lola, just to be clear. Yeah, she would be. She seems a little bit more competent. M- Malcolm is a a dog written by a woman potentially, but he's also a himbo. No thought, head empty, happy to be here. He's gonna run full force to jump on the couch, and it is 50-50 if he's gonna go onto it or into it. <laughs> so yeah, pick Lola. Mm-hmm. She's a... Sometimes she's no thought head empty, but I would not rule out her communing with Satan on your behalf if you asked her. She would do such a good job. She'd be on my side 100% of the time. After this episode, though, I really got to (laughs) say, actually, I'm really outing myself right now. Mid-research, I stopped and looked at animals that were available for adoption through various pathways. You have been talking to me the last week or so about wanting a cat. It's a problem. I'm all, you know, I, it makes sense. I just want to be clear. I'm allergic. <laughs> I have a coworker who's super allergic to cats, and she's got two of them, and she said she would never give them up. She just takes allergy medicine every day. Yeah, I mean, I want one. I have to take allergy medicine every day anyway. Right. She and her fiancé are allergic to cats, and they have two. That's all I'm saying. Well, okay, so... <laughs> I had not intended to talk about this, but there's an article that was written for Teen Vogue. I kid you not. An article written for Teen Vogue about witches' familiars. Okay. Weird. All right. Unexpected. And it's it's about modern witches' takes on familiars. And when I tell you this article is so crystal-charged, mm. sage-smudged, mm-hmm. And there's there's this whole narrative around the familiar having to pick you. And in that article, it was frustrating in that concurrent to reading that, I was reading articles about women being killed 
for having pet cats. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that if I walked into a shelter and any animal walked up to me at all, just was like, oh, hey, a person, they usually give me food, like thoughtlessly ambled by my way, I would go, oh, my God, I have to adopt this animal now. Like, clearly, they've picked me. Even if it yes. didn't enter that animal's mind that I was in the space. Yeah. <laughs> I would 100% be that person. I went to the shelter trying to look at a different cat and was like, I want a really friendly social one. And she's like, oh, you want Lola, who was already laying on the ground next to me. Oh. Yeah. I was like, I'll take her. Please. Aww. I'll come back in a few days. And I came back in a few days. And I was $3 short uh, on cash to buy her. And the woman said, I don't care. Have a good life with this cat. That's so cute. It was really cute. I sent her a Christmas update because I got Lola in July and it's um i got her from she was fostered at a school for kids with special needs so they did a thing around the holidays oh, of, so she was so, so socialized mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and around the holidays that school asks for donations of almost anything to give to the kids as gifts Aww. um as long as it's not used or very gently used in, in the case of clothes and stuff so i i put together some stuff to send over and then i sent her an email with pictures and an update on lola to let her know that like she was living a good life and i really appreciated her helping me find Finder. That is wonderful. Yeah, it was a really, it was a good year. It was a nice moment. I now live like two minutes away from where I got Lola too. That is 100% warm fuzzies all the way down. <laughs> That's what Lola does. She brings the warm fuzzies. She's a ray of friggin' sunshine. She does. She really, every time I see that cat, she really puts up with a lot from me. Because um, I carry her around like a baby the whole she time. She lets Malcolm a... 40-pound puppy slap her in the face because he's so excited to play with her, and she doesn't hiss, doesn't swipe at him, just meows angrily and lays down. And then he runs away, and she's like, wait, no, come back. And (laughs) runs back over to be with him, and then is annoyed that he wants to play with her, but also really wants to be his friend. That is a relatable energy. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So I guess, Tracy, it can't be your animal familiar. But tell me something good. <laughs> My something good is that I recently was playing D&D with some friends. Um, Casey is still running a campaign. She's such a, such a good DM. Um, but she brought in someone new to play with us. And playing D&D with a person who's brand new to it is such a fun experience. Because I play with the same group of people. I have two main campaigns going that we do. One of them once a week, the other one every couple weeks. And it's the same group of people. It's just a different DM. Mm -hmm. So one person's a DM in one and a player in the other. And when you play with the same people for so many years, you kind of get into a a little bit of a rut at predicting what other people are going to do, what their reactions are, kind of you get used to how your DM reacts to the group. So this past week, having this new guy come in with just this energy of the when people are brand new to D&D, they... Imagine things you've never thought of. We were kind of so fixated on, okay, we know Casey's getting us to this part of the story, so we got to solve this and move this. And he's like, I want to do this thing, and I want to talk to this person, and I want to – and it's like, that's right. This is a collaborative storytelling experience. And it was so much fun, and he just brought such a good energy. And so I just – it was his second session he'd ever played of D&D, and it was really just so much fun too. Oh, that's so cool. New players are truly the best. Yes. 
it was a good group because we had Casey DMing. We had Tim there who was like helping him figure out the rules for stuff. We had uh, my friend Ned there who does improv comedy. So it's just always so much fun to play with Ned. And so I think it was a really small group. It was just the three guys, me and then Casey DMing. And it was just lovely. It was just so – it was just a different energy. It was a different formulation of people that are usually there. And it just reminded me how much I love D&D and – bringing people into that space who think that they don't love it and end up just going nuts and having so much fun. If I had to pick between John Doe, who knows all the rules by heart and can quote the book and has been playing for years, or John Doe, who knows none of the rules and is just happy to be there and explore, I would pick the second guy every time. Oh, yeah. I always want to be around someone who's just happy to be there hanging out. (laughs) I'm just happy to be here, Trace. Please pick me. <laughs> Sold. <laughs> All right, the Ron, day Rowan turn. became a pick me girl for her already best friend. <laughs> <laughs> did you trip over the bar as it was on the floor making I, your way over? I did. <laughs> I said that to someone last night and they did not get the goof. Where I was like, oh, did they? I was like, did he trip over the bar that you placed gently on the floor? And she was like, <laughs> uh, Uh (laughs) i was like oh okay you don't get it okay all right moving on so thank you for picking up what i was putting down namely the bar on the floor winky face babe (laughs) (laughs) all right it's your turn tell me something good so this will be i guess in the past uh by the time everyone else hears this i hope it's in the good past but i um was up for this really cool opportunity recently um And it's still kind of hanging in the balance. Um, May the fates, I guess, do good things with that thread of my life. But it was, it's it's such a good thing right now because all my friends that know about it were like, yeah, you got this. I'm going to put the vibes (laughs) out for you. Like, I'm going to light a candle and think about you. And one of my friends has this ritual whenever anybody is really hoping for something a big deal Mm -hmm. uh it's it's called the boba squad and she goes out and gets boba with someone and they just think like put out the vibes and try to manifest and it's because one time love that one of her other friends was up for a big job that she wanted they all got out went out and got boba and then the girl got the job so that's the rule now i love that that happened to me in college i was waiting to hear about a job i really wanted my friends and I all went to go get coffee, and while we were walking to get coffee together, I got the call. It's just – it's so fun, and I mm-hmm. – I, it's it's a, something good for me, A, because like getting cool opportunities is amazing, and truly, th- this thing is me just being like, I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it, it makes me really happy that all of my friends – like yeah let's just come up with some fun silly things we can do to be like this is gonna happen (laughs) i love that so much that is wonderful energy to bring yeah and there's this um this kind of tradition uh that a a friend of mine done is and is a little bit in my family as well and it's that like you think about the thing that you want and you light a candle and you put it in the window and it's supposed to kind of act as like a lighthouse so that the thing can find you yeah. And listen, I'll take an excuse to light a candle any day, mm-hmm. any day of the week. So if yep. I can associate my wanting of a thing 
with lighting a candle, like I am in full enjoyment. I picked a scented candle that I loved and I had an excuse to light it. Like it's, it's, it's peak like romanticizing your own life moment. Witchcraft like that is, and I mean this with the words complimentary in parentheses after it, it is spicy mindfulness. <laughs> spicy mindfulness witchcraft is is truly the way that I always aspire to live. Um, the witch trials are over, my friends. Go be spicy and mindful. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember... Stories grow with the telling, so if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash. And our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch. Or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. I am who I am. All right, continue. <laughs> <laughs>